you don't know what this man has done for us in the last year and a half. Every Thursday, they would give us new proclamations, you know. And do you remember the garage? <laughs> You're glad those days are yeah. over. They didn't get much better once we left the garage. He would play here, go home, remix everything so that it sounded good. Then it would go to the tech people and they would add the words at the bottom and then it would be ready by Thursday, Friday or Saturday, hopefully. You have a life back yes. now that we're here. And we owe him much. And so thank him. And uh, we thank God for you and for your faithfulness. He's always been, I never, he'll do it. And in what he says he will do, he will do. And he loves you and he loves the Lord. And we, we, we thank you, Paul, for what you've done. We also survived because, and I, if I start a list, I'm going to miss somebody, but, but you don't understand, we were ready to go in, on March the 13th because uh, Lloyd Greenland had set all of this up so we could live stream. If we hadn't been able to do that and we were doing it already, nobody paid attention to it or cared that much about it, but then all of a sudden, it was a big deal. And so, behind the scenes, much has happened. Um, while, I'm, while I was gone, Andrew and Bruce did a fabulous job. They, they kept the ship running. The office is pretty much open now. It will be by the end of this week, so you can come by. Um, Linda and, and Colleen and, and Christina and Danny, everybody's been working hard over these last 18 months, and so I appreciate them, and I appreciate you for your continued support. As we move back, the live stream will become an the live stream will remain an important element for us. And so we're trying to do things that keep engaging people online, extend the reach, and, uh, but it's so glad to have you back. So glad to be back, right? And it's so glad to, to be in the presence of the Lord together. Because let's, let's just be honest, sitting at home with a cup of coffee is a little different than this. And we need this group experience together. And God and his... You can sing how great you are at home. We didn't sing much at my house, by the way. because, And so to be here with you and drown me out is amazing. So we continue this morning in our sermon series to discover how to return from this captivity of sorts that we've been in. The world to which we return is very different. And so I thought, well, let's look at a prophet moving forward in these next few weeks who kind of faced a similar circumstance. The people he spoke to and prophesied to, they'd been through an, a, a very difficult time, a captivity. And so after they kind of get back and get settled, what's his main message? And his main message is, you know, he tells us what God thinks is really important as they got back to normal life. And so we're exploring the book of Malachi this summer as we begin, and uh, because we want to get our heart in tune with where God is for our own sake as we return, and for the sake of the community around us as we return uh, with more public ministry. So let's set the historical stage. If you need some time, it might be nice to look for Malachi in your Bible. It's right before Matthew, if that helps. So you can go to the New Testament and, and look. It's the book before Matthew. Yeah, you're rumbling. It is, isn't it? No, I know it is. Never mind. 
this part of, of biblical history can be confusing to us because the numbers go backwards. You, you know, I mean, 59, 539 is before, is after, is, I don't know. See, it's confusing. And, and you get into the pre-exilic prophets and you're like, I mean, post-exilic prophets, and you're like, eh, there's that word, pre-exilic, post-exilic, what does that mean? So it's, you know, we don't often stick our toe into the world uh, of post-exilic prophets. But you remember the scene, you remember the story, right? God called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees, and when God spoke to Abram and, and began a relationship with him, he made a covenant, he made a promise with Abraham, I'm going to give you land, children, and blessing. And, and the nation, or the, the family that he blessed became a nation during the time of their um, captivity, number one, in, in Egypt. And those 400 years of Egypt, they, they, they became a nation. They multiplied. They were beyond just a family now. And so God brings them back to the land that he promised them, land, children, and blessing. He brings them to Israel, and under Moses and Joshua, they, they, they get there and they conquer the land. They go another 400 years or so, and, you know, let's be like every other country. We don't have a king. Well, God's our king, but we can't see him. So give us a king. So he gave him a king. And then, after that didn't go so well, God gave them the king he wanted them to have. And so he gave them David. And to David, he made another covenant. One with Abraham, one with David. And to David, he said, I'm going to make you king forever. Your throne is going to last forever. And your kingdom will endure for all time. After the death of David, it still is one kingdom for about 40 more years. When, when Solomon dies, the king splits in half. The, the, king, the kingdom splits in half. And you've got 10 tribes up in the north and two tribes in the south. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And Israel in the north... Man, I got 20 kings, none of which are good. It just is not a good sight up there. Down in the south, they've got uh, 19, 20 kings, and um, eight of them are good. And so they have a little better history. But things don't go well. They don't really, you know, get along so good. So along comes the great power of the world at that day was Assyria. Assyria. Assyria comes, attacks the northern kingdom, defeats the northern kingdom, their philosophy of world domination is, fine, we're going to send Assyrians to you, and we're going to just intermingle, and pretty soon you'll all be Assyria. So they do that. They, they are stopped. They're not allowed to, they're not allowed, not, they are not able to defeat the southern kingdom of Judah. But it's still not doing so good. So eventually, world powers change. You know, you should take a class in world history, ancient world history. It's quite interesting. So Assyria is conquered by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians decide, you know, we never got this Judah thing, so we didn't get that in the deal, so let's go down there and let's get that. So they do, and they, and they begin to attack several times the, the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, the Babylonians have a different philosophy of world domination. When they capture you, they're going to take you and the best of you and bring it back to Babylon, because then they can make you Babylonian. You know, none of this infiltration stuff. Let's bring you back and we'll make you Babylonian. And so that's what they did. Now, I have a chart to help us understand the historical setting. Can you read that? Sweet. It's in your sermon notes if you picked them up on the way in. And it's on the electronic ones, too. So there you go. So Judah, Judah's taken captive in 605. 
Then in 586, Nebuchadnezzar, the famous destruction of Jerusalem. They come and they destroy Jerusalem. But Jeremiah had predicted that they would be in exile for how many years? 70 years. So the 70 starts in 605, and they are in Babylon then, the Jews, for 70 years. And then, by the hand of God, uh, the Babylonians are overthrown by the Persians, right? Oh, those Persians. The Persian Cyrus overthrows it in October of 539. Now, this is just, this changes your soul, right? By 538, then, he makes a decree because they're like, what are all these people doing here? Let's send them back home. So they do that, and he sends a decree. Everybody can go back home, and so he lets them go back home in 538. Cyrus, he's a Persian. And so they do. They send about 50,000 Jews from Babylon back to Israel. There's a few living there, but uh, they send this bulk uh, with Zerubbabel. Rubble, Zerubbabel, and they rebuild the, the rubble, Okay. That's how you remember that. <laughs> Rubble Zerubbabel. So they send him back with, um, in, in Ezra 1 through 6 is the description of that. Then, you, in this gap of time, there's, I don't know how I even know. Where are we? I should follow my notes so that I don't make it more confusing than it already is. Okay. Oh, 536 then, right after they get back, two years after they get back, they lay the foundations for the temple. But they, they don't ever get it done. It's 15 years and they just have a foundation for a temple. You're Jewish. You can't worship without a temple. And so along comes Haggai to encourage them to finish the project, which they do in 515, finally. So you figure that out. That's a, that's a lot of years, Rob. 515 to 538 is uh, 23 years it takes them to get it done. So I got a few, well, no, we're over time here. We got to get it done. So in between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7, you throw in the book of Esther, just for historical accuracy. In 557, or 58 years after the temple is completed, Ezra leads a second group back to Judah. They don't all return at once. Some of them stayed in Babylon. So another wave comes. That's described in Ezra 7 through 10. And in 444... 13 years, hmm, that doesn't make any sense. You've got, you've got another wave. Oh, after, this, after the book of Ezra is finished, you've got about 14 years, and then they send Nehemiah back. There's no wall. The people aren't secure, so they've got to get the wall done. And then after they get the wall done, a prophet speaks whose name is Malachi. Whew, you finally made it to Malachi. We're almost at the end. The temple's been rebuilt. The walls are there. They've returned already in three different waves of returns, Ezra, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and a couple times. And about a hundred years has passed since all this returning began. So they're in the land, the captivity has been over a while, but they're still kind of rebuilding things. And so by the time Malachi arrives on the scenes, they've returned from, from modern-day Iraq, and the temple's been rebuilt, and the word of God has been established. But life isn't easy. I mean, it looks okay from the outside. They got the walls, they got the temple. But inwardly, there's a cancer on their souls, uh, the cancer of, of complacency. And so as God's final spokesman, at the end of the Old Testament... Malachi comes on the scene to challenge them and to tell them, you know, as you come back, you got to know what God really cares about. This stuff we're going to talk about, 
is important to God. That's what he cares about. Now, after Malachi ends, you have Nehemiah 8 through 13. Okay? So the last bit of history in the Old Testament is Nehemiah chapter 13. So everything after Nehemiah 13 in your Bibles happens before Nehemiah 13. They're just, they're not, it's not organized historically, chronologically. It's, it's organized by theme. History, poetry, prophecy. So Ma Malachi technically is not the end. Nehemiah 13 is the end, but historically. So now, now you've got much more historical information than you paid for this morning. So there you go. But Nehemiah serves as a prophet some, oh, it's gone, sometime between Nehemiah, he didn't know, it's okay, uh, be, between Nehemiah 7 and Nehemiah 8. So open your Bibles. Malachi, I almost said Nehemiah. Maybe I should not have so much green tea in the morning. <laughs> Malachi chapter 1, verse 1 says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And we begin to listen to a dialogue between God and his people. And we learn that first and foremost, above everything else, God wants them to know that he loves them. He loves with a tender, affectionate, unconditional love. You doubt his love, he says? Well, you remember your twin, your, your great, 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 way back there, Jacob's twin Esau? Well, how's Esau doing these days? It's desolate. He says, Jacob, I loved. And so 2,400 years later, we come to the text, and some of us still question, does God really love me? Does he care? And yet, because we do not respond properly to the love of God, things head south for us as they did for them. As they said, eh, I don't know if he really loves me. Their worship becomes wimpy. Their leaders, they're just lightweights. The relationships in the homes and in the people, it, it, they rupture. And as they face this full return, life back to normal, what does God really care about? In Malachi 1, God cares about this above everything else. God expects us to treat him like God. He expects us to treat him like God. We're loved, so we better treat him like God. Do we? What does that look like? And I think that's what we'll explore and discover in Malachi 1. Three clues for us. I mean, if we're going to treat God like God, what's got to be true in our lives? Number one, we need to embrace an authentic faith. We need to embrace a faith that is real and genuine. And right away in chapter 1, verse 6, we, we come across kind of two sides of the love of God. He calls it a father's love. One side is tender. The other side's a bit tough. Malachi calls us to focus our attention on the greatness of the love of God and the greatness of his majestic fatherhood. He is relational, but he's majestic. So we have to honor him. Verse 6, a son honors his father and a slave his master. 
If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. Now, when you think of God as Father, what do you think about? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, we think normally these days it means God loves me. He's going to take care of me. He's going to guide me. He's going to forgive me. He's going to eventually take me after I die to, to be with him. That's what a father does. And that's true and wonderful and amazing. And we should never diminish that concept of the fatherhood of God. But I think there's a striking, it is striking, that the most famous biblical text about the relationship between fathers and children doesn't stress that aspect. Exodus 20, verse 12, the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. When you think of the fatherhood of God, do you think that God means what he means is that he's supposed to be honored and revered and venerated and held in sacred respect? Uh, maybe not. Why? Because for so long, the ideal of human fatherhood in our culture has not been a godly man whose leadership and authority and wisdom and strength earns the respect and the reverence of his children. No. Instead, we've been very careful because we want to correct the authoritarianism that we think of when we think of father and the aloofness and the abusiveness. And so we've lost part of the central core of, of what it means for God to be father. He says, honor your father, which implies, fathers, you need to be worthy of the honor of your children. We need to be the kind of father who brings out in our children not only playful affection, but reverential respect and honor. Dads, do we ever teach reverential esteem to our children? Now, I'm not sure if that's the cause or the result of our one-sided view of God's fatherhood. I suspect it kind of works both ways. Because the less we emphasize the need for our children to reverence their human fathers, the less the fatherhood of God is going to trigger our, our reverence. And the less God's fatherhood brings out our own reverence and honor, the less we're going to be part and make part the, the, the human side of the fatherhood of God. And I think the fatherhood of God is brought up here by Malachi to humble the priests. And it's also to frighten them a little bit because they're despising their father's name. They're treating the altar as if it's trivial. The fatherhood of God in this text, I don't think it's for our comfort and for our security. It's, I'm a father. Where's my honor? The fatherhood of God implies a sacred duty that his children honor him, that his children respect him. And so we have these two sides of the fatherhood of God, and we need to hold them in tension. We should have a childlike security. He's going to care for us and, 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 and take us to be with him, and, and it's all wonderful. But we should also have a childlike reverence for authority. 
God deserves to be honored. And notice the phrase, Lord Almighty. Lord, the word Yahweh, unpronounceable, too holy to be spoken by the Jews. You've got to write it down. You've got to wash your hands before you do and afterward. It's the name that refers to God as who he is, the one who causes everything else to be. He is the unchanging one. He inhabits eternity. Lord, and then it's almighty, or the word for hosts. Lord of the armies. The Lord of a, of a great number of armies. God has all the armies of heaven at his disposal, ready to do his work because he is the infinite authority in the heavens. Eight times in 11 verses, the first 11 verses, if you go down to chapter 2, verse 2, eight times he calls himself Lord Almighty. Verse 6, if I'm a master, where's my respect, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 8, who would, he, who would, he accept, would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 9, will he accept you? Did I repeat that? It says the Lord, I guess I should look at the text. It says it again. Verse 10. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 11, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 13, you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. For I'm a great king, verse 14, says the Lord Almighty. Verse, chapter 2, verse 2, if you do not listen, if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty. You're getting the picture. Lord Almighty, Lord Almighty. Go back to verse 6 as it opens. I think the priests are probably saying, amen. You know, you guys are not honoring him as father. It's the Lord Almighty. But notice the next phrase in verse 6. He says, it is you priests who show contempt for my name. Whoa, ouch. Malachi says, you know, it is actually the priests who are showing the contempt here. Because you as leadership, you're no longer thought of God as weighty or significant. Because they hated their duties at the temple. It had become a ritual. It was wearisome. They'd taken God for granted. And they had the nerve to lash out <clears throat> at the Lord of hosts. The Lord Almighty. Verse 6 continues, but you ask, you know, they're like, whoa, how have we shown contempt for your name? Come on. Don't ask God how, because he'll tell you, which he does in verse 7. By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. They're going through the motions. They are treating the extraordinary as ordinary. They have such an intimate familiarity with what they were doing that it had just become yawning spirituality. Genesis 4 records what happens when two brothers, Cain and Abel, bring an offering to God. If you recall the story, one brings um, um, Cain as a farmer, brings the first fruits of the harvest. Abel's a shepherd, brings the first of his flock. And for some reason, God accepts Abel's offering and rejects Cain. And people have for, for centuries debated, you know, what's the difference? Why? When you get to the New Testament, 1 John 3 says, the reason Cain's sacrifice was not accepted is because he brought it with an evil heart. Hebrews 11.4 says that the reason Abel's offering was accepted was he had a heart of faith. See, God looked at the sacrifice-er and the offer-er. 
and he looked at their heart, and he was looking for authentic adoration. He wasn't looking for a sacrifice that was, in its essence, a spiritual sham. If we want to give God our best, we have to embrace him authentically. We need to come to him in a genuine way. We have to stop going through the motions. We have to stop just refusing to to play church. And we have to do whatever it takes to keep the fire burning. And some of us dishonor God. And we count him as, as contemptible. When we try to live our lives with what Charles Swindoll calls, calls, you know, $3 worth of faith. Swindoll writes, some of us would, would love to buy $3 of faith. That's all we need of God. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a, a cup of warm milk or a little bit of sunshine in my life. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb. I don't want the new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'll take $3 worth of God, please. As we return, how authentic, how genuine is our faith? Second thing he says in this text, in verse, beginning in verse 8, is that God, we need to give God priority over our possessions. Not only is our faith must be genuine, but we've got to give priority to God over stuff. Verse 8 says, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, isn't that wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? says the Lord Almighty. The the priests were not accepting just the second best on on sacrifice day. But worse than that, people were bringing sick goats and sheep and and lambs and gross things. You know, they were offering the ones that weren't worth anything. I mean, imagine a parade of of lambs or goats coming to to the temple, and they can barely make it because they're limping, or they got sores and they're covered with flies, and maybe some of them don't even make it there. God says, isn't that wrong? Uh, Well, they should have known it was wrong. Leviticus 22.2, God made it clear. Tell Aaron and his sons to treat with respect the sacred offerings the Israelites consecrate to me. So they will not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. You must present a male without defect from the cattle, sheep, or goats in order that it may be accepted on your behalf. Don't bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. God deserves priority over your possessions. He gets to say what kind of offering to bring. And these people were more concerned about about keeping what they had than in giving what the best was that they had. Their hearts were not really into God anymore. They were back in the land, but, you know, we got to make a living. They're still coming to church, but it was meaningless ritual. They had accepted mediocrity in their lives, And the leaders did nothing about it. The bottom line is they thought, God God didn't really care what I brought. Because if I thought God cared, I'd bring the right stuff. We got high taxes. Not a lot of extra cash. 
And who does God hold accountable for those decisions and those offerings? The priests. So I guess pastors are a little bit responsible for making sure that churches do not slip into some ritualistic religion that no longer puts God first. So as you return, what are the standards for sacrifices? First, he says, give your best. They had been taught to, to look through their flocks, you know, find one animal without defect or blemish. It wasn't easy to do because that animal was the cream of the crop, and that animal was going to get more money on the market, and that animal might be a good, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? It'll have better animals, you know, the good, the chain, the genetic breeding. It'll be a good animal to breed. Oh, yeah, it says it right there. But that's not what the Lord demanded. You got 50, am 50 lambs in your flock. 10 of them are excellent. 35 are okay, and, you know, five are pretty blemished. Well, those five blemished ones aren't going to earn you much money on the open market. So what do you do? Well, you give the five blemished ones. It's two for one. Let's get rid of them and satisfy God. What does it matter? They got a sore here or there. Still an offering. But God knows exactly what you're doing. You're keeping the best for yourself, and he gets the junk. And God says in verse 9, you know, try offering them to your governor. <laughs> Is he going to want that thing? You're treating me worse than you treat your own government. Who treats the government good? <laughs> and what's behind all of this? They didn't care about God. They didn't care. Because they thought God doesn't care. He'll be glad to get anything at all. He's God. These are middle class people who had rebuilt the land with their own hands. They faced high taxes. They had bills to pay. And they didn't have a lot of money, so they tried to cut corners as best they could. But behind it all is a flippant attitude toward God. A flippant attitude toward worship comes when you have a flippant attitude toward God. You may think that external things don't matter as long as worship is concerned. Oh, it doesn't matter, it's just my heart's in the right place. But whatever is in your heart, it's going to show up <clears throat> in the way that you live. The whole problem in Malachi is that the people were flippant on the inside. So they brought God blemished animals on the outside. You got to give God the best. Second, you got to give God first. Second Chronicles 3, 31, 5. As soon as the order went out, the Israelites generous, generously gave the first fruits, the first fruits of their grain, new wine, oil, and honey, and all that the fields produced. They brought a great amount, a tithe of everything. God got the first. It's a statement of faith, you know, maybe not what's going to follow. We're not sure. But they gave to God first. God doesn't get the leftovers in your life. And you recognize in doing that, when you give to God first, that, that he matters above everything else. God measures the offering by its, worth to, uh, by its worth to the person who gives it. Third, giving should, be, should cost something. 
Israel had been taught that giving should be sacrificial. Second Samuel, classic example. Second Samuel 24, David wins the battle. There's, there's been a, a, a plague on the land because of something he did, and God's judging the people, and it's over with now, and he says, I want to give an offering to God. And they tell him, go by the field of Aruna and, and, and make, have him build an altar there. And so Aruna says, fine, I'll give it to you. And David says, no, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So how does our worship reflect our heart toward God? I mean, you promised to serve Christ in this church, but man, you even said, oh, I'll teach Sunday maybe. I can do Sunday school. And where are you? You said, I'll be an usher, but when Sunday rolls around, you know where to be found. You said, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. But you pay every other bill first, and you never have anything left over for him. You promised to be a living sacrifice, but you've crawled off the altar. And you wonder, why is worship boring? Why is God angry? No wonder we just go through the motions because our heart isn't in us. Worship that costs us nothing is worth nothing. And you can't have a come-see-come-saw attitude toward your faith. Because if you bring this cheap sacrifice, God's going to call you a cheat and a swindler. And what does he say about us? Because if you discover that God bores you, then you will not find anything in the universe that will satisfy you because nothing heaven can offer will meet your need if you're bored with God. God needs a priority over your possessions. Our faith must be authentic. He needs to have priority over us and our stuff. And number three, and most important, I think, we need to grasp the greatness of God. Verse 10 really ought to cause us to sit up in our chairs because God would just as soon close the doors of the church than to come meet him with pathetic leftovers. Verse 10, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar because I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. How would you feel? You walk up to the door and it's locked. You know? As hard as it may be, God doesn't want to sacrifice. He might as well just lock the doors if we're not coming here from a pure heart. And he's saying, don't you dare allow me to be represented as some lifeless religious icon. Just shut everything down if you're phony. If you're not prepared to give every inch of your being, don't just play church. Close the doors. No worship is better than half-hearted worship. God doesn't need us to give him anything. And then he gives us the purpose behind worship. Verse 11, my name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me. Why? Because my name will be great among the nations. Verse 14, cursed is the cheat who has an has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it. I'll give it to you, God. But then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. Why is that wrong? For I am a great king, 
says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. I will be great. I will be feared. You see, sacrifice is directly linked to the greatness of God. That's why when we give him our best and we don't give him our best, we don't really understand and grasp the greatness of our God. When we offer him little or nothing, we're saying God doesn't matter to us very much. And when we fail to celebrate the greatness of God, when we do that and we celebrate it and we give him our best, then we'll never be bored with what's going on and we'll be excited about what he's doing around the world. There's probably nothing more miserable than a half-hearted believer. And that's what happened to the priest in verse 13. Instead of counting it as a privilege to serve God, they say what? And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? They really thought worship was just more trouble than it's worth. They sniffed at it contemptuously, which means they, they puffed. They, I imagine God looking at us and wondering, are you bored with me? Where's the problem? Micah 6.3 says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. Isaiah 1 verse 12 when you come to appear before me, who has asked, you th- asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. He gets just as strong. Malachi chapter 1, verse 14. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it and sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. Shut it down if that's what you're going to do. He's angry because they promised him their best. And they gave him their worst. They said, take my life and let it be. Consecrated, Lord, to thee. But now they changed their minds. You promised to be a living sacrifice. Is that still true? God doesn't want to be cheated. Ecclesiastes 5.5, 5, when you make a vow to God, do not delay fulfill, in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. He's saying, my name is going to be great, whether you acknowledge it or not. The party's going to go on, with you or without you. And God told Israel that his greatness and his grace will be given to the Gentiles. Huh? And guess where it's at now? There's a time coming when every knee will bow and acknowledge the supremacy of our God. So, has worship become wearisome? Probably. If I'm honest, not right now. It's kind of fun to be back together again. But what does it look like when it is? Well, three things. There's inadequate preparation. This is before you get here. What does Saturday night look like to you in your schedule? Do you make preparations beginning Saturday night so that the focus of your attention on Sunday morning is you're awake and you're ready to hear God? Second, do you have half-hearted participation? You show up and you finally get to church. Let's be frank. 
Frank, you know kind of the general pattern of an order of service. We do try to mix it up from time to time or so subtly. But there's nothing more boring than trying to worship God when your heart's not in it. Have you prepared for it? Everything that happens up here is not designed to entertain you. It is designed to help you catch a vision for who God is, to assist you in worship. You're not the audience. He is. And third, you have improper motivation, which is, why do you come to church in the first place? Are you coming here to get something for yourself? Or do you come because you want to meet God and you have an appointment with Him? And your answer to that question makes a world of difference. Instead of wondering if a service helps you to determine whether you liked it or not, the real issue is, did I meet God today? And in some degree, did I grasp His greatness? Are you giving Him what's left over? Or are you giving Him what's right? If we're going to give Him our best, we have to first understand His greatness and embrace and authentic faith. The Archbishop of Paris once told this story. It was a true story. He said, one night many years ago, three men set out to enjoy all the samples of what Paris had to offer on that evening. And we did it. And after they had a great evening together, they were lounging on the steps of a great cathedral and decided, you know, let's really top this off well. Let's go inside. There's going to be a priest in there. Let's go confess our sins to him. This will be crazy. We'll have fun. They meant it as a, as a blasphemous joke. But one of them stepped and said, yeah, this does sound like fun. Let's go in and do it. So the three friends go in, and one young man volunteered to go see the, the, the priest. And as he did, he began to tell the priest all that they had done that evening. And he was very detail-oriented. And the other guys are outside snickering. And the priest can hear this. And he finally says, oh, young man, I've heard enough. You don't need to confess anything else. You know, if you want forgiveness, outside of this booth, there's a big cross. Go to that cross and say these words. Lord Jesus, I know all that you have done for me, and I don't give a damn. So the guy walked outside. I'll finish this off. He walked outside and knelt before the cross. He looked up. It's a Catholic church. Jesus is on the cross. And he said, Lord Jesus, I know that you all that you have done for me and I ask you to forgive my sin. And the Archbishop of Paris ended with these words, I know this is a true story because I am that man. Because it comes down to this, if you understand and grasp the greatness of God and what Jesus Christ has done for you, you will never play at church again and you will give God your best for the rest of your life. No wonder Malachi begins, I have loved you, says the Lord. The hymn writer put it well, what language can I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, 
For this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. Just make me thine forever. And should I fainting be, let me never, ever outlive my love for you. And so our section of Malachi ends in chapter 2, verse 1. And now you priests, warning, this warning is for you. If you do not listen and if you do not resolve to honor my name, I will send a curse on you and I will curse your blessings. Are you ready as we return to treat God like God? Because as we return, we are believing God for an outpouring of blessing in our lives and in our church as if we've never experienced before. But we cannot return to plain church. If you want more out of worship, then go ahead, put God to the test and see if he'll open the floodgates of heaven because it's an issue that's very simple and very personal. It is time for a new beginning. And that begins with the decision that I will treat God as God. That I will readjust my heart and my mind and worship in the shadow of the greatness of the one and only. Let's pray. Father, for too long we've lived as if you don't exist. And sometimes the temptation is to just go through the motions, but you've got our attention now. And so forgive us. The fault is ours, it isn't yours. Because you've told us so long ago and you demonstrated on the cross that you love us. And so we thank you for being a God of grace, for being there when we need a new beginning. And so we open our hearts to you. And this morning we worship no one but you. May your love overcome our fear and your grace overcome our hesitation. In Jesus' name, amen.